This is unstructured. Welcome to the show. Today, I am super excited. I have a guest who I've been a fan of for many years. I may be geeking out a little bit because I've had her voice in my head for probably a hundred hours throughout time. Um, today, we're joined by the fabulous CJ Crit. Well, thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. Uh, Thanks. A hundred hours in your head, and gosh, we're not even dating. It's really that's something. <laughs> well, CJ is a an audiobook narrator, and one of the series she narrated was by Margaret Marin um, about Judge Deborah Knott. And I also listened to her reading Patricia Cornwell. So she reads some heavy hitting authors. Uh, Janet Ivanovich is another great example. And it is really quite an intimate thing to be listening to the book. And I have an association where I will, if I'm in a store, I'll actually remember what I was listening to of the book at the time. Next time I was in the store. Interesting. Well, I have heard from people uh, when I've done comedy who'd say they get up to an intersection and they just start laughing so hard that like the other cars decide to back away. So it's, it's amusing to find out that, uh, yeah, they'll, they'll be like on a highway and just having such a wonderful time. The next thing you know, they're getting a speeding ticket. And they didn't even realize they were speeding. So I do know that the book can help transport you in traffic, certainly. And that intimate experience when someone will come up to me after uh, a, like a live public pr- presentation, say, oh, you got me through my brain surgery recovery Oof. period. You know, I listened to that those books. I couldn't, couldn't read or couldn't focus. Uh, but, you know, that would help me. So it, it is like you're... Um, it's a performance for one person and it's quite, it is quite intimate. Uh, and it's quite, I mean, I'm a stage actor and a ham to, to boot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if that isn't clear, it will be soon. But uh, <laughs> uh, just that knowledge that once you're in the booth, this is your book, your journey to take someone on for eight, 10, 12 hours. Uh, and that's going to be finished hours. So most likely you're in there for twice to three times the length of the hour long read. So if it takes 10 hours to listen to a book, you were in the studio 20, 25, 30 hours. So it's a pretty long commitment, unlike say commercial acting or doing voiceovers for other kinds of work, such as a a museum guide or a commercial or an industrial. So um, you, you dig in and you play every character and read every word from page one, right to, you know, the end. So uh, yes, it's, it's exciting. It's a kind of a big responsibility and it's technically rather challenging. Uh, not every good stage actor can do audiobooks, uh, can read with total accuracy, and not every good, um, like someone who reads copy beautifully for radio industrial, they can't always act. So it, it it's a it's a hybrid of skills skill sets to be effective as a narrator. That's really interesting. I actually just interviewed a, another voice over artist. He um, does promo work. Yes, and he had stated that the worst people to get into voiceover are radio people Ah. that they far prefer actors over radio people because radio people are trained a certain way to be announcer man. And it's hard to break them of that. Right. They tend to get stuck in patterns and have some habits unless they were kind of the school ham and actor and a comedian who then just happened to major in communications and gets into radio. Then they may again have a multiple tool sets, but if they're, really hammered into it and they're so used to that pattern it can be uh, yeah it's almost like sing song they just they can't really they can't identify it they don't know how to like let it go and it's sort of like a, an accent um 
once it's brought to your attention and you want to change it, you can change your accent. But it is very Mm -hmm. emotional and it's often like kind of an emotional barometer, how people talk. So it's very like telling people to change is um, you you take your life in your hands. Like when people give a they don't even think they're going to be defensive about it, but they're very defensive about it. So you have to be careful. Um, And yes, some people can uh, because they want the work, they can act, they can humble themselves to learn and, and they're teachable, then they can make changes. But other people between ego and habit, it's really hard for them. So, yeah. It's really funny you brought up accents. Uh, now, that's one of the biggest takeaways I got from the whole Deborah Knott series. And I credit you because you produced it with me, you know, helped me listen, was the fact that we're losing the tapestry of accents and that, that every accent is sacred in its own way. And it's like color or music and slowly they're all disappearing all the regional accents things like that and it was hearing those books that completely turned my turned me around on it because i grew up thinking oh you make fun of southerners hmm. or you make fun of different you know accents brooklyn or whatever else sure now i, I realize no that's what makes them individual that's what makes them special or interesting or mm-hmm. dynamic well it's there there are so many um idiosyncratic accents all around the country. And it's easy, I think, to do broad strokes. So you might do a very kind of over-the-top Southern thing. And, and mine is sort of between Southern, foghorn, leghorn, well, I say, I say son, you know, and I, let's get some corn bone, you know, like, you know, it's just, it's terrible. It's really, really goofy and over-the-top. <clears throat> but to go light and be Southern is also quite different than to go light with a Texas accent, where at, in Texas, there's usually a hard R, like water. But in, in, you know, maybe in the deep south, water and the, and the R just kind of like butter. It just kind of disappears. So hmm. to, to I think the main thing with accents, try to respect the character you're playing. If you respect the character you're playing, whether it's an, uh, you know, an ethnic accent, I, I do a lot of uh, black characters and I certainly try to do it with love and respect. But it, it depends if they're like the black female judge or a hooker on sabbatical. They're going to have different qualities, but in each case, I want to try to at least evoke a sense of another person coming from another part of the country, coming from a different ethnicity, coming from a different age group, coming from a different gender. So for me, trying to play and identify those characters is sort of part of like being a detective. You look at this manuscript and you think, what do I need to do to serve up great performances? How can I make this accent believable, but not so you know, corny and over the top that I'm foghorn leghorn, or I'm doing a terrible mm-hmm. cliche. I, it's really, it's hard for me to do Boston. It's hard to do, most people hard to do Jamaican, but I mean, when I have to do them, I will really try and listen. YouTube is a great resource for that. But it's it's interesting that you brought up Margaret Marin because she always has had it in her mind that the voices were not true North Carolinian voices. And it's complete, like no other author in all the world that I work for, you know, had a problem like, those voices are not quite accurate. I don't think those regionally are quite correct. So I asked her, I said, well, you know, you may be right. Maybe you could help me. Could you tape some indigenous neighbors and send some of your, you know, a few paragraphs back and I will mm-hmm. really study them. So instead of, you know, uh, saying no or getting upset about it, I sort of challenged her to help me do better. And she actually, she couldn't get any men because there's a lot of male characters. She couldn't get any men to help her out. But she <laughs> did get several ladies and a few of them sent me some things and I'd listen and I thought, oh, wow. And the book immediately following this critique, I think, was more um, accent correct, more authentic, because I found that there's a few 
accent vowels that they do in North Carolina, they don't do in other parts of the South. And they mm-hmm. used to, there was the, 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 I think they call them the Hoy Toidas. There was an English settlement in maybe it's the Outer Banks, but there's some very remote areas where people, mm-hmm. they say you almost, they sound almost like Elizabethan England. So who your Island. Yeah, yes. I mean, no, there were no videotapes from Elizabethan England. We can just guess. We really, you know, we have some parchment, but it's like, you know, it's our best guess is that these people um, were so isolated that they have retained this unique dialect. So there are some unique, to be fair, there are some unique North Carolinian accent sounds that perhaps I had not mastered. But one of my best friends who like lived with me since like days of college and we've stayed friends ever since, her husband's from North Carolina. And so Ed and I are pretty good pals. And every now and then I'd call up Ed and say, how would you say this in North Carolina? You know, if you were home. <laughs> and so it's like the part of it was sort of funny because I thought, you know, I've actually worked pretty hard on these accents, but she just doesn't, you know, she has decided. She's come to not like them. And so sure uh-huh. enough, a couple more years go by and I'm get and I've done so many books for her that every now and then I would email her, hey, when's the next one coming out? And so she, uh, I noticed there'd been a pause and I was hoping that she was well and getting mature, things happen. Well, come yeah. to find out she was waiting to kind of work on the next book. There was going to be a lot of elderly people in it. I thought, oh, good, I can do old voices. That's fun. But she had a new publisher and part of her deal with her publisher was she wanted to do the audio. So that was a condition on like, I will go with you, the smaller publisher, but this time you don't pay someone else. You let me narrate my own books. Mm. So she has, I guess, done the last two or three. So when the first one came out, you know, people who weren't necessarily her personal fans and didn't really know her, I'm sure her book group was thrilled. You know, her neighbors were thrilled. But mm. I saw these couple of blurbs on the internet. It's like, did CJ die? <laughs> <laughs> I really like this author, but I will not listen to this book. I took it back, you know, like, so people, Mm -hmm. were just it was, was, I don't know. It's kind of the chickens came home to rest or some, there's a, there's a cliche that suits this, but at any rate, I find it amusing that the, you know, of the many people I work for, you mentioned Margaret Marin, she's written some great books and there are some very exciting regional portraits that you don't necessarily see or hear from the furniture making area, the, the seashore, the huge, mm-hmm. uh, the real estate boom is a real thing down there. I mean, that's really oh, big. Yeah. The pottery that the, uh, so it's various indigenous uh, industries, you know, uh, I know t- timber and furniture is big down there. There's some specialty kind of uh, artisan. So she would often, and, and, per, and I, I'm sure she's not alone in this, if you're a writer and you're making money, maybe you go spend a few weeks in some charming place and say, that's where I'm setting my next book and I'm writing all of this stuff. Exactly. (laughs) Of course. I mean, honestly, you're stupid not (laughs) you're making a better product. Yes. Yes. And I don't, as a taxpayer, I don't mind it. I'll fund it. Go go, do good. And and you're eating some better seafood. So why not? So yes, that's, it's very, yeah. And uh, speaking of seafood, Margaret often, uh, uh, really rhapsodizes over the meals. Have you noticed that? She can go on about mm-hmm. a she-crab soup for a page and a half. <laughs> or a pig poke. <laughs> yeah. So that, 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 anyway, that, that amuses me because that's that's the only author to say, uh, you know, I need to read these books and I need to read them so badly that she waited like almost 20 years to do it because I've read wow. like 20 books for her. So, I mean, she would do one a year. And finally, right. she, she was able to flex her muscles and, and she had to move on. I think it's 
think Grand Central, slightly smaller publisher, but they said yes. So she, you know, and there was a part of me that would have been annoyed a while back, but I thought, you know, this is her heart's desire. Bucket list. I'm glad for you. I'm glad it's happening. But uh, uh, that that has not happened with other authors who sometimes get enchanted with another reader or their publisher just puts them with a different house that uses different talent. And, you know, that's just kind of the, the luck of the draw, because I have had several authors where I had a really long ride with them. And then, you know, then they're off to something else. So you just have to kind of roll with the punches and just go with it. Uh, look, yeah, that's brutal. Um, another person who did that was Harlan Coben. Uh -huh. um, I'll never forget, but <laughs> he writes standalone books and he writes a My Myron Bolitar series. Uh-huh. Hint. If you're an author and you write a series and you yeah. write standalones and you're going to read your own book, how about you do a standalone? Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> it was bad. <laughs> and you know, I, I, I wish him well and all that, but it was just, it, it was horrible. He had an amazing reader. Right. What a shame. And, what a shame. Yeah, and, and it just, it harmed the series. It was, it was almost unlistenable. Well, right. It's when it's uh, counterproductive and it, and it hurts the book and it hurts the enjoyment and the people have, exp you know, the listener or the reader has a right to have expectations of professionalism, especially when the other people have been serving up some really good work. Um, yeah, that's super frustrating. I mean, I know over time, Stephen King has had, has done some, you know, narrated some of his stuff. And because he's Stephen King, no one's ever going to say no to him, but most <laughs> of the time he would just find the best you know, audio book collaborator and work with that person and, and be fine with that. As a matter of fact, he was very kind to a super talented guy named Frank Muller, who I once said, yes. uh, Frank and I were like co-readers on a book. We each kind of had different uh, points okay. of view, different chapters that we did, which was well, great. And he very sadly had a, uh, just a, death of, yeah, just a death defying wreck. And then, uh, and he survived for some time after that, but he eventually succumbed. And, Gosh, you know, yeah. Stephen King and some of these big authors, they helped throw a, a huge uh, benefit for him at, um, gosh. Yeah, I think they Town covered Hall. his bills with the benefits and I, things. I, I think they definitely helped out. They And so there there was appreciation and compassion for him when he was in a, a difficult situation and helped his, his young wife and, and family. So, yeah. I think that might be when Stephen King started to read a little on his own because I, mm -hmm. I felt like feel like he had a, a really strong loyalty. Yes, to Frank Muller, and I don't think he wanted to just immediately hand the work over to somebody else. It, that could be. He seems like a really nice guy, and that that would be in his position. I could almost see. Oh God, I don't want to, you know, say something bad or make him feel bad or, or look bad, and maybe I should just do it myself. And then you know, over time, you can then time helps push that by. Right. And I think he read live that night and was just a riot. So I remember thinking, wow, because I was, you know, subscribing to, well, you're the author, just stick to authoring. But no, he was really very entertaining. And I read a few books for Barbara a Kingsolver and people really like her. So she's, uh, she now I think reads all of her stuff, but I read three or four for her and she was a lovely writer and read a couple of books for Ann Tyler. I'm sure she's just, you know, works with a pro. Um, and I, I really enjoyed the first books I read for Barbara, um, uh, or, excuse me, for Patricia Cornwell. I, I don't think necessarily the strength of her writing maintained the same level of freshness. And uh, Oh, thank you. <laughs> I can't stand her later work. Yeah. yeah that, I, she went off the deep end. Well, I, I, yes. that's, that's the way it felt. Yes. I, I don't know her personally, but it just, 
Yeah. yeah she and, went from a great author to James Patterson. Yes, oh. pretty much. I, you, you got the feeling that she was being compelled to write on a deadline, and, and, and so she had exhausted her several very good ideas and then was some treading water, going into weird romance land. It was unfortunate, I thought. Um, also, <laughs> she, she's a good example of when, when it started out, it was super dramatic, and I don't think that the Kay Scarpetta character – had a, I'm thinking back many years now, had a boyfriend in the first, uh, necessarily the first book, but there were attractions mm-hmm. and sparks flying. And I think the guy that ends up at well, Benton Wesley, I'm, again, I'm sort of guessing here, but I'm pretty sure when I first started him, he kind of had a Maxwell smart, kind of a smarty pants. I know a lot and I have this kind of unusual <laughs> cadence. It's kind of annoying and I'm right in your face and I'm the authority. And then I thought, oh no, she falls in love with him? Oh no, he can't talk like that. So I had to just, <laughs> I had to just like slowly kind of back out and make him just more masculine and, and attractive sounding and just authoritative, but not kind of this smarty, smacky little jerk. So yeah, so, so, so sometimes we have to, uh oh, and kind of backtrack a little bit on a character as, cause you don't, they don't give you a primer saying you're going to do seven of these books and this character is going to morph into this and that. And the other thing oh, you, okay. you, you don't always know. I mean, sometimes you, it, they don't know either. They don't know either. Sometimes you know it's going to be a, a genre or a serious book because you've worked for that author before and that's what they do. But yeah, other times that's like your first time with an author and they don't know it's going to be a hit yet and ba-bam. <laughs> and you're off to the races and you've sort of uh, plugged yourself into these various character voices. So that could be a little bit challenging. Um, some some narrators I know make like a, a side recording where with each major character, they'll read like what? They'll say their name. And they'll read like one line in ah, you know, in Stacy's voice, and then they'll hit pause or stop, and then they'll do the next one, and that's kind of like their table of contents. They can go back and check those. I have a pretty good recall and a usually a good ability to recreate what I did before once once or twice. That has failed me when I didn't have the same back in recorded books days. We all had a director or an engineer, and usually uh. you had the same person day after day for your sessions. Well, because I would come in from Texas and I was also very facile and did my homework, I would get a different director every single day. So they hadn't all necessarily listened to the whole book with me. And only it was actually was a Larry McMurtry book. And I had a very colorful character or two. But partway through the book, the character changed and nobody monitored. You know, someone was asleep at the wheel. I mean, someone should have been monitoring that and saying, hey, we got a little off. Let's make sure we bring that back to no. So Mm. probably halfway through, they just thought that the person have a personality change or (laughs) <laughs> you know, bipolar. So, and, and, and in a Larry McMurtry, there could be bipolar, but still, it, it wasn't. Uh-huh. It wasn't one of his grand westerns. It was actually a contemporary novel. And so, uh, for for whatever reason, that the very colorful character in it sort of evolved. So that is something that uh, now most narrators have to work at home in a home studio. You really like that wouldn't happen to me now because I would know that there's nobody going to be checking on me. And if I'm at home, I have to really be uh, my own. Uh, task force in terms of people even do their own quality control used to be the actor read the book did the Mm -hmm. research if you needed to do some and you came you warmed up you came to the studio that day and recorded um anywhere from two two hours for like a recorded book session up to four to six hours at the major studios because they'd like to maybe finish your recording in one week and then a week or so off they might proofread it and check it out and then bring you back for little retakes but at recorded books, we would just do like two hours, maybe three times a week, almost like going to the theater. Here's your two hour show. 
And then other people were in those studios the other times. And then you come back a couple of days later and back. So if you do that, you have to match really well because you have, you know, maybe you're in a play in between or you're raising your family. So it's like hard to remember everything. So fortunately, I can match pretty effortlessly. But a lot of people, they just play a re- that's It's tape. So you just play a reference and then you go, oh, okay, that's that's how romantic and sexy he was. Or, oh, that yeah, French accent's really light. It's just, it was just bizarre. So, you know, <laughs> you, you just play with it and then you go, okay, Okay, I'm back. Um, and, and so you I, do read ahead of time, then. I I read the, like I would say. Do we look like Orson Welles? Don't answer that question. Um, no, we we don't just wing it. I read the entire book ahead of time. If it is a tricky book, like the one with the, all the uh, female bios and these various New Yorkers from Eastern Europe and uh, mm-hmm. Africa and all these amazing com- uh, country names, so I would. Uh, pull all of that out and make a special list. Like you need to look this up. You'll need to figure that one out. And like unusual country names, a little phrase in Latin, a little phrase in Yiddish, a little phrase in Russian. How am I going to say that? So I will do like a little research page or two. And and not every book is requires this, but some do. And uh, certainly if it's nonfiction, you may have a lot of notes. Like over the summer, I uh, read a couple of like Christian press things, which I've never done before. Uh, growing up Catholic, we didn't really read the Bible. It was like, what's in there? We don't know. It's poetry. I'm not looking. <laughs> <laughs> and so everything's, you know, Genesis and Deuteronomy and foreign. And I had never done any of that attribution before. So that was really fascinating. But the best part about the Christian books was I got to play the role of God. Oh, I loved it. It was so <laughs> much fun. So getting to be the voice of God and, and sort of these great kind of pronouncements from the Mount, it was that was actually quite thrilling. But for things like that, Yes, I not only read the book in advance, I do a research pass. And then the day of the session, either the night before or that morning, depending on when I go in, I'm going to read 10 to 15 pages out loud and then skim read the rest of the next like 25 to 40 pages. Because the more prepared you are, the better you do. And the more you wing it, the more times you're going to stop and have corrections and have problems. As you are reading ahead of time, (laughs) I've got a couple questions coming here, but as you're reading ahead of time, do you start character mapping like picturing characters in your head and determining hmm they're they kind of feel like this or they sort of feel like that that's good homework usually they just kind of they tell me you know i just usually know but let's say it's a difficult scene with four or five major characters talking some for something like that i'm definitely going to be thinking a little bit more about who they are how they are slightly different trying not to repeat the exact kind of pitch and tone and pacing if there are several in the, again, in the same scene, you know, me doing four brothers, that's hard, but you know, I'll just make little, like one's deeper, one's faster, one's younger. Uh, you know, what, like I won't do something really corny, like one has an obvious lisp, but certainly someone could have a way of speaking that is a little bit more thoughtful and measured. And someone else might have a really smooth and, and, and a voice that moves along with alacrity. So trying to find those different like pacing and tone qualities mm-hmm. to give slight, I mean, they're not hugely different voices, but to give slight uh, different readings and different, different qualities and energies to the character. So there'll be some of that if it's uh, difficult or challenging. If it's kind of standard fare, like it's a romance, it takes place in Texas. He doesn't have an accent because he didn't grow up here. She does. If there's like big broad stroke stuff like that, I often just sort of let the book tell me what I need to know and then trust that in the moment, um, again, this good writing helps in the moment I'm going to act what's appropriate for the characters. And I, it's because I have a deep voice. It's not hard for me to do a guy or two, but you have great range. Oh, thank you. But it gets tricky when you have to do several in the same scene and then, um, 
and I always the joking thing about having done some, I call them cactus erotica, uh, a handful of uh, romance novels all set in, in Texas is that, you know, I kind of know that what the guy is going to sound like, and I kind of know what the girl's going to sound like, and you just tune mm-hmm. them to this one's more rural, this one's more sophisticated, this one's more Texan, this one is not. And so I make those little adjustments, but I kind of, on a, you know, on the love meter I kind of know where they're going to register. <laughs> and then the, the fun comes with like uh, side characters, funny, you know, funny sidekicks, wacky mm-hmm. friends, uh, colorful grandmas, the town drinker, you know, those kinds of, inter- you know, the, the uh, heart of gold waitress, you know, those people can have a little bit more uh, spice to their voice because it would be overpowering and irritating to hear them page after page after page. But if they're in a couple of scenes, it's fun to have somebody have a little more, um, not even just just a little more colorful and memorable voice that might get t- tiresome for a long. How time. is it when it's an explicit scene? That has to be interesting. Oh my goodness! It's one of the worst things to have to make. You know, beg yourself for sex in a small enclosed space. Welcome to audiobook <laughs> romance. You know, and because usually that's what happens. It's like one, oh please, oh please, oh god, I have to say this. This is so embarrassing. Yes, you do, and then you have to play the other part. So. It, it's and you a, have an engineer on the other side. <laughs> only once. And that, that was probably the worst one, too. It's just, I was, it was horrifying. And this very nice married guy where both our ears are burning. It was just awful. Um, the, the, rest, the rest of the time, I was always alone. And so that's just embarrassing because I'm by myself. And sometimes, literally, I would turn off the tape and just go, I can't believe I said that. Oh, my landing strip? No, I said that? Oh my God, his member? No. As a matter of fact, I, I, I do these uh, spoken word things and I used to have this one call. Um, and it was a list of all the things that we had to say. You know, uh, it was like, um, well, it's, it's not too R rated. Uh, I think, I think, sure, you, go for you, it. I, I do it with two women. And it would be like, um, moist thigh, moist ab, moist lips. And so one person kept, kept saying moist, and then the other person would say different parts of that. And we would get down to buds, butt, nip, at, and said, finally, and I go, these are words that I must say. These are words that I must say for money. I didn't write these words, and they're all by page three. So it'd be like, it's so, we did this whole thing about like the kind of naughty things we had to say. And then how all the women that were listening, you know, like, because uh, uh, I had a, this girlfriend that took a couple of uh, coaching sessions with me and she said oh you're very popular in my quilting beat like so people like to get that <laughs> quilt and so and then they just put their little headphones on and they're all listening to this erotic audio material and they're all like la, 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 you know like sewing along and like oh my gosh so i just imagine their little earbuds melting you know while we're they're quilting along like daisies and mushrooms and i'm just saying the most graphic things imaginable <laughs> so yeah that stuff's pretty embarrassing i have to say um, and I know oh, in the world of they have, um, uh, you know, it used to be you, you had an agent, you uh, submitted a tape, you tried to get into the audio publishers and some said yes. Mm-hmm. And most of them didn't ever listen to your tape. I mean, you could be mm-hmm. great, but if people won't listen to your work, then you just can't get the door to open. That's sure. super hard for a lot of people. Well, now there's a no, more of an, a level playing field and an open door. And the open door is called ACX. Yikes. Yes. Yep. The um, audition creation exchange or audiobook creation exchange. And well, it is sort of an audition exchange because it does create opportunity. So people who just have, you know, chutzpah and a home studio can start putting their work up there and they may or may not get offers, but they don't have to go to New York City or Los Angeles. They don't have to be connected to a major studio. They don't have to have an agent and they don't have to belong to the union and they don't have to have 
professional credentials. If they have a good voice and guts, they can get out there and be competitive. So um, I now that I'm teaching, I have a lot of students who have been getting these ACX titles. And what excites me is, well, okay, yes, in many cases, they're working for free and you wouldn't think that's so great. But it's sort of like instead of taking 30 classes, they do one or two books and it's sort of like a free apprenticeship. They learn how to do Yeah, they learn how to do it. They get a nice notch on their resume belt. If they're mm-hmm. any good, by the time they've done eight or 10 hours in the studio, they got better. And uh, two or three of them now have gone from like, you know, the, the just doing it to get it done to now having good enough work to being offered so much per hour. And then they're, so they're parlaying the freebies into uh, better titles and work that pays. And in a couple of cases, they were so smart. They said, you know, it's a stupid little textbook or a workbook. It only is a half an hour long, but it's been required to download by somebody's mm-hmm. course. And so now they're actually making, they did it for free, but now they're making money. So some of them have cleverly parlayed these little, like I'll practice on this, I'll practice on that. And they're making money from it. So that really thrills me with my students and the ones, and some of them are doing it have no acting experience. They have a good voice and they're good at like, you know, how stressed out I got doing the tech thing. I had to like lay down for five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, they're good at that. So like oh, two or three come from IT. Well, I worked in IT and I did all the uh, announcements at work and everyone told me my voice is great. And I'm like, well, people say that to a lot of people, but you actually want to do it. You're taking a class, you have the equipment, you're not intimidated by the technical aspects and you love to read. You have several ingredients of potential success. And so if they're any good and, then, and they're willing to do the work, they start getting books. And now, now that some people do not have storytelling skills. They can hear it. They know when it's good. They have pleasant speaking voices. They start reading. They just sound like a stick talking. It's just, <laughs> you know, bless their hearts. They just, and they'll come to several classes. Now, usually they don't keep coming if they're not, they, they can feel I'm getting better. And then and they keep coming and they really do improve. But the ones that right. are kind of good, or had lovely voices, they go bang, bang, bang. And in two or three classes, they're ready to work. They're, I mean, it's, it's not every student, but what I find is about uh, three out of five that come to me are going to end up working professionally. And there's like two, one's going to try and it's not very good, but it's going to try. And one just is going to f- peel away because this is not for them. But three out of five sure. are going to be, yeah, you're good enough. You can work. And so I'm very I, excited to, to be able to encourage them with, and not unrealistically because they're actually getting results. Cool. I actually interviewed um, Andrew Werlin, who does audiobook narration a few episodes back, and he started and mostly does ACX. Right. And what he did was very interesting. His first, I think, three or four books, he used a pseudonym. Very interesting. Good, good. So he went out there essentially and sucked. Right, right. And he admitted that he sucked. Um, but he sucked but, at Joe Blow, not as himself. That was very smart. Very smart. That and he has taken every seminar yep. every bit of training yep. private training you know private coaching through skype in yep. person all over um i had no idea how much training there was out there for a voice until i interviewed yeah. him yeah and he's you know he now has like 120 books probably by now he, he cranks him out he has a full-time job impressive impressive well um i can think of two women who spent a lot of money uh, took from the most expensive teachers you know would redo their reel over and over and in each case they got you know impressive they started with agents here 
and got agents in LA, got agents in New York, because you don't actually have to live there anymore. You know, if you, if you right. can turn around quickly and you have the home studio and one girl's got like, she can just record anything like, like Superman, just go to a phone booth and make it happen. She's got oh, a little, wow. little teeny uh, remote, um, a portable, great little portable set. She was a professional right. musician before she got into audio. Uh, and so she's like fearless and comfortable around, like she can talk microphones, like guys talk batting averages, like, oh my God, <laughs> what does this mean? It's like way too boy for me. But uh, both of them, you know, they're a little younger than me and they started not as kids. They, they were well out of college and decided this is something they want to do. But uh, yeah, the people who, well, they, in each case, these two women had talent, but they worked really hard and they took a boatload of classes and they spent money and they really invested in themselves, but it paid off. Like they didn't just keep going and throwing money down a toity because they had no talent, but they, they didn't just cheap out either. Cause I, I mean, I do meet people. I think, well, you're good, but you're going to, you're going to need real equipment or you're going to need to go to L and they, they just, and I don't even say that they aren't good enough. Um, they don't believe in themselves and, and, and maybe there's not a, you know, a, a friend, a husband, a, a, a buddy saying, but spend a thousand dollars, do it. You're worth it. Because sometimes, right. you know, I, cause I'm not, I also, I'm, I don't, um, I don't coach for high dollar stuff. I would never like if, if it's a corporation, they can pay more. But if it's my fellow peers and actors, I just won't because I'm like I've been there. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not one of your high dollar guys. And I actually will walk people's reel into my agent. I have some credibility. If, they, if I call up people and say this person's really good, they will usually get their audition. So I, you know, I feel like I give good value. But I do know people that will take hugely expensive courses to get close to someone they think can cast them. And unless they were already so good, they could work there without that class. It's probably not going to happen. And that I feel bad for them because I think that some of these studios are exorbitant. Um, now, if, again, if you're talented like this fellow that's made a name for himself, you, you will probably get full benefit out of what you spend. But I think there's a lot of people that, um, you know, that pay to play thing. It can be really abusive to actors because there's so many one in. Um, th sure. There are these websites now. I haven't participated in these, but uh, some of your other voice people may have. <clears throat> you know, it's like a pay, you, no agent. You pay like a subscription fee for a year or for a month to sample it out. And then mm -hmm. you audition as often as you can, as much as you want. You probably fill out a big profile of yourself, post some samples of your work. And you might get cherry picked. Someone might just look at your stuff and go, "Oh, what do these sound like? Oh, gosh, I could I could hire this person." And but usually you don't get those calls until you're already working. When you're already working, there'll be repeat calls. But in each case, sure. you're paying to be part of that system. And it used to be like these two girls I'm thinking of. They 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 get a lot of work that way. And now you can actually be on those things and have an agent, and the agent's okay with that. But when oh, I was really? coming up, right, it was you signed with the agent. You were, you know, it was unethical and uh, actionable should you, you know, get work outside of that. Hmm. Now, I think because so much is, is over the Internet, the agents are resigned to the fact that uh, and, and some agents may still ask for exclusive everything. But they'll say, well, if you got that and it wasn't through us and we had nothing to do with it and it didn't conflict with, you know, the auditions we got for you. then that's that's you, you know, just take it. Um, so some of the agents are a lot more flexible and generous in that way. And they try not to, um, I guess, cut off their nose. Despite, you know, like if I tell them no, then the actor will leave. They're getting work. Uh, so I know that I can count on that when I try to pitch them to a casting director. Say, this is a very competitive actor. They're really terrific. They're booking all the time. Of course, the agent would like them to be booking through them to get their little percentage. Sure, I actually sure. have some sympathy for the agents because in Texas, this is a right to work state. I've always right. been union since my early days in New York City, and I've held on to that. And it's really hard for the agents to get even union work for their talent. People with terrific cred uh, credentials, 
because of the atmosphere of like, let's go non-union so we don't have to really pay people and we don't have to worry about health insurance. And we, and, and uh, what the people who are eager to do that work don't get is that had the union people not come and fought first, they'd be getting nothing because too many people are willing to do it for almost nothing. Uh, and it's like, you know, the feast or famine, there'd be a few people super in demand. They would get whatever their agents could bang out for them and wrangle sure. something extra. But then everyone else would just be crumbs. So that's um, being a union person. Uh, you know, I've always been grateful to the, to the fact that uh, when I was young and stupid and booking lots of commercials and someone would have said, do you want a little extra money or should we hold on to part of this? And then when you're old and no one will hire you anymore, you'll get some of it back. And I would have said, give me the money now. And so thank God, because he was like, you're stupid. We're going to keep some of this for you because you don't know what to do because you're 20. So, you know, gratefully years go by and, and uh, you know, I hope that other people will continue to join the union more than movie stars because well, the, the very tippy top people will want that union protection. But it, what the union does is allows a middle class actor to have a life, to pay the mortgage, to put the kids in school. The union allows that kind of protection and certain levels of you can't work for less than this. You know, you can't give it away because too many people would. And and as an artist, you know, when I write something for the theater, I, not only am I giving it away, I'm usually, high, I, you know, my checkbook, I hire the actors. Come be, come be sing right. these songs, be in my show. If we get lucky and get a producer, yay. But if we don't, I'm an artist and we're going to do this and I'm going to pay you something for your time because I respect your time. So I'm pretty good on the other, like I'm, I'm happy to be the artist and take someone else's, you know, someone will say, did you ever turn down that book? No, because there are no bad paychecks. And yes, I've read a Patterson novel, <laughs> but only, <laughs> only once or twice. Um, but you know, oh, you know, I didn't realize that I picked that. <laughs> yeah, you did say Patterson. That's funny. Um, and, and people would, because it was pretty like, ew. And I remember the other guy was like, this is pulp. Yeah, I think there was two of us. Like a, the guy did the guy's point of view, and I did the female protagonist's point of view. And we would go out, you know, we would go to our respective studios and record, and then we'd have our little coffee break. And we would just kind of go, ew, want a shower? Ew, me too, ew. So we were out there being <laughs> judgmental and, you know, stinky about it. But of course, we took the job. We didn't say no. Um, but I do remember that the gentleman was even a little bit more conservative and older than I. And he's like, kind of like, should we write like the publisher and just tell them this is awful? I'm like, no, I don't think, I don't think it'll help. I don't think it'll do any good, but yeah. So we, we go out there and play kind of like armchair quarterback. So we play green room quarterback and we bitch about the titles, but we still do them and, and I'm happy to get them. But yeah, like, I don't even remember my, uh, I went off on a tan, my Patterson tangent, but, um, I, work is work, man. Yeah, work, work, is work, work is work and, and grateful to get it. So, yeah. Speaking of which, um, what was your path into, um, a voiceover and then audiobooks? I, I, hey. I've got my. I think you had voiceover before. Yes, yes. Audiobooks. Well, one of the reasons I love Mad Men, uh, I wasn't around when Mad Men was in its heyday, but about 10 years after that was when I started doing commercials in New York. And we did still back then go to Madison Avenue. We dressed up and you, you had wine with your agent at lunch and you were not considered a problem drinker. It was normal. So it was, like, <laughs> it was different back then. The good days. <laughs> yes. And so. Uh, I do, you know, I, I loved going on commercial calls. It was really fun. I was quite competitive because uh, back then I'm from Oregon. And so I was tall and blonde and funny. And the funny girls were all ethnic. They were black. They were ah, Italian. Cool. They were Jewish. And so if you looked blonde like Procter and Gamble, but you were funny and kind of a clown, Carol Burnettish, then that was, wow. You know, so I had a little heyday where I booked a lot of spots as a young person. And what was so funny, I'd be 25 
and they would put me like in Saks Fifth Avenue silk blouse pearls, and I would be doing the laundry. <laughs> oh God! And then, there, and I was once even like a ring. You're a ring around the collar, mom. And there was uh, two kids. One of the kids was supposed to. Dirty mom was a cute little brunette from uh, Connecticut. I still remember her. And I'm clean mom, the tall blonde from Oregon. Uh, of course. And <laughs> and so she, in real life, was I'm probably 26 and she's probably 30. So she's, you know, the the supposed to be the mother of a 14 year old boy. Well, she probably didn't have a child at 16. And I'm supposed to be the mother <laughs> of like a 14. So like, what am I, hillbilly mom? I had a kid at 12. So that 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 was, you know, commercials in the 80s that you put the trophy. I'm, I'm was hardly a trophy wife in terms of being a, a like a blonde model but i was young and fun and i would be like you know paired with the guy that would be paunchy and 20 years older you know like oh that's my ideal dream date so that was always so uh. funny to me and so he'd be the right age to have teenage boys and i would have been like killbilly mom to do but that was like the the idealized project you know the the youthful mother kind of thing so i sure. I thought that was very funny but i did do lots of commercials and uh, back then, I was with an agency called Cunningham Escott Dapini. I think they've added another uh, initial to the brew, but it, I think it's CESD now, but it was CED then. It was kind of a fair, big, big uh, commercial office in New York. And one of their um, other actors was a gentleman named Karen McHugh. I always thought that was like, boy named Sue, don't call a guy Karen. You know, mom, dad, little baby, yeah, just mm-hmm. don't do it. You know, Stephen, Michael, something. So anyway, Karen and I are walking down the block. We've been to an audition. We've, we've done some comedy thing. And he says, oh, I got to know. No, part-time job and I knew he had done radio and uh as a, as a lot of the voice guys did back then and uh so I assumed that's what he was doing he said oh no no this is like a audiobooks oh really and I thought like for the blind oh no it's for sighted people it's just like a books on tapes I had no idea really what this was other than like the library of congress when the, was this this is uh, 88 88 probably 98 wow really early yeah really yeah early. or maybe 92 I think I'm thinking 92 I have to, yeah, I'm, I'm going to say 92. So back like about 92. Yeah, yes, that is, it is right. It's 92. So uh, uh, he explains what he's doing. And then I remember saying, well, gosh, that sounds kind of cool, but they probably, you know, never use women. Oh, no, there's there's a lot of women, a lot of women writers, a lot of women narrate. Oh, well, they probably they'll have everybody they need. They never see any new people. Oh, no, no, they do. do they, they see new people all the time. Use my name. So I called up. I said, I'm a friend of Karen McHugh's. We have the same agent. I'm a union member. You know, we're working on these uh, auditions for commercials. Is there something? Could I ever audition for you? So they actually let me come up and audition. And they uh, played that tape for uh, Linda Barnes, a Boston-based author who had a mystery series uh, starring Carlotta Carlisle, a six-foot-two-inch redheaded cab driver, private detective, volleyball player. So (laughs) I I remember uh, they told me they set up about six tapes and Linda Barnes picked me, thankfully. And she just said, I don't know who CJ Crit is, but when I heard that voice, that was my six foot two Carlotta. So she like was my first uh, entry, thankfully. And not too long after that, um, you know, I remember after I first auditioned and sent my little thank you note, because we did things like that back then, snail mail, um, you know, and they were you know pleased to meet me and we all laughed and had a good time. But that author is the one that made the difference because many times they don't let the author pick. It's just, there's a cat in-house casting director and she's like the matchmaker. She, she or he, but frequently as a, she matches the talent mm. to the book. And that's all the, you know, the author doesn't get any input. They just get a check. Some authors, right. in, you know, like I will give you my rights, but I get some kind of casting input. And then the, the Margaret Marins and the Steve King can say, well, I'm, We'll give you the book, but I'm doing it, you know, so everybody has a slightly different deal. But usually they just get a check, 
hand over the rights and it's a, you know, pig in a poke and they hope it's good. Um, so I was very grateful that, uh, Linda, you know, chose me. And then I did, I think about six books for her and they were very fun. They Hasn't that changed over time? Sorry to yeah. jump oh, absolutely. track a little, but yeah. I kind of feel like, um, I, I'm new at audiobooks like early oddies, but yes, even from then till now, it's changed overnight. Oh yes. I kind of feel like in the early days, authors would sign a contract and they would get their book published, but the audiobook rights were sort of like a foreign rights. They were just an after Right, right. A subsidiary auxiliary right. Because um, audio took a lot more money. And so not every book, print book, justified the additional expense of an audio. Not every book seemed to make it worthy risking and speculating on, you know, if we bring this person to the studio and we spend several thousand dollars all told, the actor's not going to get all that, but all the other expenses, are we going to get our money back? So they usually wait and see if the book was a hit and or unless they already knew this author, everything they do sells. So if the author was unproven and the book was not known yet, they'd wait. But now they do what they call simultaneous release, as especially if it's a popular author or it's a kind of a hotly anticipated book. But even just regular books, if the author has enough juice to sell the audio to, they don't all. But if they do, then they try to you know anticipate as they're going through the galleys and correcting and fixing the print thing. They're also hiring the actor, putting them into the studio, and ideally they release the audio. You know, goes to Amazon, iTunes, exactly, yeah. That's, that's well, some audiobooks outsell the um, paper. I know. Yes. Yeah. It's kind of cool. Um, I mean, that's, I don't, I don't uh, welcome the fact that the print industry is shrinking, but the audiobook industry is exponentially growing. Well, you were, you're a writer yourself, right? Yes. Yes. You might know a narrator. <laughs> I do. And, and sometimes authors uh, contact me directly, and that's very fun. I do like working for them direct because it's, you know, kind of an honor that they, seek you out and find your website and call you up and blah, blah, blah. and they're always like, well, I was just one. I didn't think you'd ever do. It. Of course I'll do your book. Let's, let's figure this out. <laughs> <laughs> As I said, no bad paychecks. We'll make this work. Uh, but no, that's, that's actually very fun. And um, just today I re- and I don't get to do very many children's, you know, I've done the, the audio uh, Texas erotica and that's fine. I've, you know, there you go. I've, I've paid my dues with that. Uh, I do enjoy doing kids books. From cradle to bed. I'm sorry. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Womb to tomb. So um, <laughs> I, I, I did get to do a really cute kids book today called, If You Want to Take a Piano to the Beach, Don't. Uh, and the same author also wrote, If You Want to Take an Alligator to School, Don't. And so <laughs> very cute. Uh, she's a great illustrator. And it's just all the whimsical things of course that you know piano doesn't belong at the beach and getting pooped on by seagulls and floating away and so that was very fun to, was not a lot of copy but i actually suggested to the audiobook uh, producer i said could we after we finished doing the copy do a second track of just wild lines for instance the little child's pushing a piano like and he said sure you know so i sent him all that to see if he kind of to make it more like a little almost like a film score under it you know it'd be awesome is um you could do a YouTube thing where you know the page you're reading out loud and doing all your tracks. Yes, I mean, that'd be that cute. would actually be ideal for the environment. That that's that is very cute. I, I think the uh, of course the, the people that hired me have to monetize this, so I don't. I think doing something like that on YouTube as a sample would be adorable as a way to entice people to come. You know, go to the library and check out the book because they, their group is called Library Ideas. So. The end mm-hmm. user doesn't pay. They're a library patron, but then they sell a product to the library. And to be fair, 
they do this little neat, I mean, the books are hardback, so they're firm and, and fairly sturdy for little children to, you know, whip <laughs> around. And then there's this cool thing, thinner than a cell phone, but about the size of uh. a cell phone. And it is a plastic item and it is attached to the edge of the hardback book. And that's the player. So the Okay, book that makes sense. The book, yeah, so you... I didn't know that. It's it well not every kid book does this but that's kind of their proprietary cool way of presenting the material. So the kids get the adorable illustrations, they can learn to read because the te- the text is simple and then they're hearing mm-hmm. the the text read to them and every time this reminds me of Catholic school. Every time that you advance the page you're boop and so then they know to turn the page because sometimes <laughs> there's just a picture of like a seagull and then you just boop and you turn that page and Boop, and then you turn the next page, and then I'm, you know, talking. Here we are at the beach. So anyway, it's super cute, but it's like that's, it's, that's awesome. It's what are they called? Um, let's see. It's if you want to take a piano to the beach, don't. And the author is Elise Parsley, just like Parsley Sage Rosemary. That's Parsley. So I'm, I'm going to tell my wife because um, she's a librarian. Oh, it, it, they look adorable, and I. Uh, the company already did one with a different narrative, very cute, called "If you want to take an alligator to school, don't." <laughs> okay, awesome. No, that that sounds really cool and and great for development. Kind of makes me. It's not the same thing, but um, like I I introduced my wife to play away. Oh yes, because I thought it was such a a great idea because of many audiobook readers are not comfortable having to deal with CDs or That's having right. to deal with free player. The um, metaphor of one book, you plug your headphones in, it's a book. When you're done with the book, you give the book back. It's an exact match to a physical book. Right, right. I remember when those were big. At the, I mean, libraries have struggled trying to find the, the best uh, medium for audio because that's a huge part of their uh, mm-hmm. what they offer their patrons now. And that's why when uh, recorded books kind of in their heyday, when we would go around and do these live shows – um, I'm sure there were many uh, sales salesmen making sales calls and sales ladies making sales calls, trying to promote the different, you know, on random house and penguin. Uh, they all had their own um, audiobook units, but uh, recorded books would really, they, they would work hard to try to hit every single library in person and then, um, you know, sell those uh, first cassettes, then CDs. And now I think they partner with overdrive or some other um, library. Zinio the magazine people and um, they bought Tantor. Yes. Yes. Um, recorded books was on the ropes there for a minute. Yeah. They uh, were, they declared bankruptcy, I think, or at least some, they were part of a, a bankruptcy declaring uh, maybe they were one of the healthier units, but the, I, maybe the, the, I know cause we got a letter saying, don't, don't panic. This just looks bad on paper, but we're, you know, we're reorganizing. We're back kind of thing. But Yeah. Um, and they've changed hands a couple of times. So they, again, they're back in the golden days. The original guys that ran it were like, you know, an actor or this and a that, and like three people just really creative sure. and put it all together. And they st- they stayed with it for a good, you know, eight or ten years. And when it grew and grew and they, they cashed out, I certainly don't blame them. But it definitely, uh, you know, as it gets more and more corporate, it loses some of that warmth and some of that kind of theatrical, everybody's in this together kind of thing. I mean, we used to have amazing – like baseball summer picnics and wild Christmas parties. And I don't even know if they do that anymore, but um, you know, it's just that, that level of family warmth is not the same. And it, it, well, it can't be because they're going against Amazon who bought out brilliance, yeah. bought out audible. So, yeah. I mean, w- when you're going against Amazon, God help you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> sure. 
that is a, a really, really, really tough spot to be in. So I'm, I'm glad they bought everybody, you know, bought others out. And did they, I think they might've bought Belinda too. I, I don't remember, but mm-hmm. it, it's kind of like a consolidation of everybody else. Yeah. yeah. Blackstone held on, I think, but I don't know. I, I'm a big audiobook nerd. If you haven't picked that up. Yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Good, good. But one thing good is I discovered audiobooks in the early oddies and it, the pickings were thin. Yes. And that's part of the reason that I read people like Sandra Brown and mm-hmm. Margaret Marin. Or it was kind of like, oh, I got to have something. Yeah. And that wound up forcing me to discover a whole lot more and many more titles than I naturally would have picked. Right, right. And I uh, actually worked a couple of times for Sandra Brown's husband doing just straight ahead uh, uh, audio for, I think he was doing like beautiful Virginia, sort of like tourist stuff, you know. And so I actually did some straight um industrial narration for him and when i was doing mm. it i told him you know th- this is great to be working here and your studio has a lovely place in arlington texas but by the way what you know i do do is these audiobooks and so his wife at the point she, this is gosh we're going back over 15 years she was not kind of you know maybe hadn't had a good experience or didn't think that was for her but i talked it up and i talked it up and sure enough within six months they had wooed her to recorded books and they were they didn't ask me to read her books but they definitely uh you know brought oh, her, yeah they brought her on board and i and i was pushing so yeah there's like I, it's sort of like back when the apple stores used to do one-on-one and they would let you go for 99 dollars a year you could go once a week and they would hold your hand while you did audio uh-huh. video uh editing I, I went all the time and did all these great projects and then sold it to many of my friends that you edited this? How did you do that? Well, I did it at the Apple <laughs> store. And when they found out like, you know, they too, techno boobs could go in there and, you know, have some success. It was just, yeah, it was, it was easy things you believe in that worked really well for you. It's easy to sell. So, um, yeah, that was, that was a, a lovely time of like technical growth. So, uh, I, I just wished everything you know, like you could recommend it and it just worked that easily, but that did. It's, it's still amazing everything you've had career wise. And um, I wanted to get a couple more things covered before sure, we wrapped sure. up one in your resume. I saw that you were in, they all laughed. Yes. That was Dorothy Stratton. Yes. Yes. And she was murdered. Did you come across her at all or she was just on set looking gorgeous, but we didn't have any interaction with her. You know, we were just kind of part of the big masses there. It's not going to be, um, you know, it's like, I was in a Woody Allen film where I was on st- on set with the principals, but for, uh, they all laughed. It was just like, I was with, a, you know, a sea of others. And so she would never yeah. notice me or we didn't like bump into each other at the, the honey wagon, having a coffee. Uh, sometimes, sometimes you do, you know, kind of interact with people. Sure. But, yeah. No, that was a sad time. It was. It was a sad time. I do remember, if anything, as a comment on the Times, because there was a big, huge kind of circus-like zooey crowd there, it was not the most well-managed set. And, you you know, a sense of things being a little out of control, a little chaotic, kind of the Mm -hmm. disco times, that was was in the air. You know, um, I think I had to – something I wasn't very good at, like skating or something, and I just kind of had to fake it and hold on, act like I knew what I could – you know, people were dancing and twirling around like, "Uh uh-uh, I can't do that on skates. So (laughs) I I, I just remember – and that could have just been my lack of physical confidence doing it, but I do remember thinking that this is not a particularly warm or happy or safe place. It was just a little bit – you know, chaos was in the air, and it was a – not particularly porn stars so yeah yeah well you know they're probably you know psychically there might have been a little darkness there something that was not very good yeah 
Wow. And one more, I, I just, I came by it on Vimeo and I was like, what? Huh. Sam Kinison? Oh, my Sam Kinison story. Oh my God, you saw that on Vimeo. Okay. Well, that's a true story. Um, I was, years ago, I met my husband when he was a bartender at the Improv in New York City. So I always had like a soft spot for the improvs. And so the improv out in California was a bigger deal because like uh, Bud, who was was Mr. Improv, when he and his wife mm-hmm. split, she continued to run the New York club, but it kind of died out. And I don't, it's not even there anymore. I don't even know that she presents comedy anywhere, but Bud went off he to Cam- Mitzi. Uh, right? uh, yes. Um, well, Mitzi's a comedy store. Uh, uh, Ginger, uh, Ginger, Bud Fried- Ginger Friedman. So uh, Bud's wife who was always a New Yorker, stayed in New York. Bud went out to California and had much more successful the improv on Melrose, I believe. And mm-hmm. so uh, then this is like going back, thir- you know, Sam Kinison is still alive, but just really a few weeks before he died, I was in there eating food and I was by myself and he walks down the steps from like on the upper sort of semi VIP room from above. And there's literally, it's a working girl on either arm and she's got, um, you know, wearing a boa and glitter and just like, this is not just a cute girl at the comedy club. And he is like King Duda and all the guys just get, Oh, Sam, Sam. So like everybody kind of gets up to make way for him, or even if he doesn't come by them, but they want to stand up and be acknowledged and maybe he'll stop by their table. It's, you know, he's doing TV special. He's a big deal. So mm-hmm. I'm just minding my business, eating my little salad. And, and I, maybe cause I don't look up and I don't act like he's anything special. I do look up for a second because everyone's kind of like the room is shifted and the energy. Everyone stood up. <laughs> this person looks at me, not particularly attracted, the girl on either arm. And he does this tongue in the little cannoli shape. The tongue come, comes out like a little canoe. And it's like, then he sort of quirks it into this shape. And I just remember thinking, ew, shower, <laughs> ew, ew. And so I just went real surreptitiously. I look behind me and think, well, maybe that's a, there's a girl behind me. Somebody knows. I thought, oh, no, there's no one behind me. Oh, my God, <laughs> that look was for me. Ugh. So I just remember thinking how, you know, can I act like I didn't really, like, you know, he knows that I saw him because I saw him. Ugh. But anyway, just I have to go blank. So I just go blank, kind of poker face. He moves on <laughs> to people who are then giving him attention. But I remember thinking about it because, um, a few weeks later, I'm now leaving Los Angeles and he has just passed away, like within a week or two, just had that accident by the side of the road. And, and that there was a lot of press on, he had turned over a new leaf and he, you know, I don't, sounds rude to say he found God, but something sort of profound like that. And like the, the Sam that we know of, you know, Coke sniffing, bad behavior, Sam, no, this, he was the new guy and isn't it tragic this happened. <laughs> and so I'm driving to um, California, for, uh, no, through California to texas in my little uh, mazda and i remember thinking at the end of a long day and now out kind of in the desert and uh kind of maybe i've just passed el paso or something and um, i'm going pretty fast and uh i, I remember having like kind of this uh, this thought of um gosh you know sam kinnison everybody said he's like changing new leaf and i don't buy it that's just you know <laughs> he was a grody guy and that was so grody what he did to me and then the next thing you know, there's no real traffic, there's no wind, there's no bad weather. I am on the little gravelly side of the road, and I'm just, I mean, I'm still going really fast. It's like almost as if an essence or an unseen hand has just taken the wheel and go, oh, yeah? And like it's pulled me off to the side, like, think about this. <laughs> you know, the tires are, and I'm trying to slow down and get back around. 
And I just remember thinking, okay, okay, I won't say, you know, I just sort of felt very vulnerable out there in the middle of this desert and maybe like Sam hadn't quite moved on yet. And maybe he was like, you know, there was an essence of him that was like, judge me. Well, you know, see how you like them apples. So yeah, I <laughs> just remember thinking, okay, okay, I'm done. I'm done. And, uh, you know, it's kind of like, a, you know, I take it back. I take it back. And then I was, you know, back on the road and, and I, nobody overtook me and I didn't have any, you know, oncoming traffic issues, but yeah, it was very much like, for a moment, someone else was riding with me in the car and was steering that car. And <laughs> and it maybe that's just karma really fast. You know, think something negative about someone and then it comes right back to you. So um, I did not wreck. Wow. But yeah, that was my Sam. T- and I was at a, a shoot here in Dallas and they said, well, we'd like you to tell a ghost story. And I thought they were just going to like take a couple seconds of it and, and montage it with other people's ghost stories. So I, <laughs> I did not have any idea because I didn't rehearse for it. And I obviously not wearing, you know, hair and makeup. And so I just do it and it's fun and everybody enjoys it. And then when they played it, the next time I saw it was when the little film premiered and it's there in its entirety and when it was over in the film theater, spontaneously, people just started applauding. So that was really fun that 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 it stood out like a little performance because it wasn't, you know, intended to be anything but this little party anecdote. And then it turned into that. So funny that you God help me the stuff that's out there. I don't I don't even know. <laughs> and, and, well, it's actually a perfect, perfect thing to wrap up on because right. you have such a varied wide career. Well, yes. From yeah, from Sam Kinison to um, <laughs> to if you want to take a piano to the beach, don't to <laughs> to cactus romance. Yes, we've done in, into forensic thrillers. So there have been um, it's been a colorful and varied career, I must say. So where can people dig up more material about you, CJ? Well, um, I do have my little website, cjcrit.com. And so sometimes there's samples of some writing things. I have some hilarious screenplays and working on a couple different musicals. And of course, uh, people do reach out to me. I, I Skype and, and host, uh, uh, sometimes I work with authors on their own material and sometimes I work with readers. And this weekend I am actually hosting Narrate Like a Pro at Real to Real Studios. And so about once a month, I will, I'll give workshops to work with other narrators. So kind of, you know, it's a little bit all over the place. If people reach out to me, I always get back to them. And um, I know that on, uh, gosh, on Audible, there's probably over 100 titles that I've done. So Oh, easily. Yeah. Easily. People want to listen, they certainly can. And it's always pleasing to hear when somebody has like, you know, you mentioned Margaret Marin, new favorites, people I don't always hear about every day. Well, excellent. And thank you so much for coming on. Oh, my pleasure. It was a, a real treat. And this is like my only my second podcast. So I feel very, very special. And I thank you very much for in, in inviting me and including me. That was awesome. Well, likewise, thank you. So much. Hey, listener, Dutch here from Voice from the Underground, the podcast. My co-host and I want to invite you to check out our little corner of the podcast verse. At Voice from the Underground, we talk about all the crazy happening around us and try to make a little bit of sense out of the nonsense with little to no results. If the idea of hearing three semi-intelligent, outspoken nerds talk about politics, social issues, current events, sports, movies, pretty much anything that we decide to talk about because, well, it's our show, appeals to you, grab your shovel and come on down to the underground and then consult a qualified psychotherapist. Find us wherever you get your podcasts, just not where you buy your weed. Boys from the underground. Now, tonight's adventure into the unknown. Shut up and sit down. Hey, it's Sarge. And Frenzy. From the Sarge Approved Podcast. 
Uh, if you're not familiar, the Sergeant Proof Podcast has a guest every episode featuring uh, people like actors, comedians, uh, survival experts, authors, martial arts experts, basically a whole gamut of badass people. Yes. And you can check out all our episodes on all the podcast platforms, iTunes, Spreaker, uh, uh, Stitcher, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, um, yeah. you can check us out on all our social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all the things. It's all at Sarge Approved. Yep. Check it out and we hope you enjoy it. Bye.